How you guys doing? Good, good, good. If you guys are new here, my name is Brian, one of the pastors, and uh, we are going to jump into the uh, Gospel of Mark. If you want, you can open up there real quick, and we'll get into that in just a second. Um, I have a real fast announcement just to kind of throw out to you. Um, don't regularly do this, but this is, uh, I have a kind of a unique opportunity to just kind of throw out to you guys. If anything, to be praying for, uh, the secondarily, uh, secondarily, if be something maybe you'd like to contribute, be a part of it, would be awesome uh, for you to just consider to pray about um, one of the guys in our church, when my wife and I actually first planted the church in here, it was back in 93. We were 23 years old. Uh, we got married when we were 20. We were two years old uh, marriage-wise when we moved up here to plant the church. We had a little apartment, 700-square-foot apartment, downtown San Luis. We had a little Bible study in, and uh, literally, like, the whole floor space kind of occupied, like, the first five rows, and that, that was about it. And uh, um, the church has continued to grow, and you know we've seen God do a lot of amazing things. But um, that very first um, year, two years that we were here, one of the good friends, one of the one of the people that we had met originally, that was part of our original kind of Bible study, that had just come to meet Jesus, and they were growing in their walks with God, was a guy named Scott Clifford, and uh, him and his wife just started growing in their walks with God, and then God placed a call upon their life to to go plant a church, and so they. Uh, moved down to New Zealand and actually planted a church down in New Zealand, a place called Rotorua. And uh, God's doing really amazing things down in their church, and they're having a huge impact upon the culture and the community down there. A lot of really great things are happening. And um, God's using Scott to uh, start or to do a pastor's conference, and uh, he invited me. Actually, he's been inviting me for the past five years to come out. Uh, it's kind of expensive, so that's one of the reasons why I haven't gone out. But um, finally, I'm just, I told him, about a, you know, eight, nine, ten months ago, I'm like, okay, great, I'll come. I don't know how the Lord's going to provide for it. It's a lot of money, but I'm going to, by faith, just go. And uh, so I'm going to have an opportunity to go to New Zealand to be a part of uh, a, a guy that has been a part of this church. He's come back here. I think he spoke here several months ago. Some of you may have been around here when he came and preached on a Sunday morning. Um, but I have the great honor of being able to go down there and be a part of a pastor's conference that he's pulling together uh, people on both islands there in New Zealand to be a part of. They're expecting about 150, 160 people to be down there. Um, so two things. One, I would really covet your prayers. It's going to be the week following Easter going on into the second week or so of December. It's almost two weeks. Um, so one, just I would really ask you guys to be praying for that time, praying that God would uh, give me safety and whatnot and uh, those I'm going with. Um, but also, two, provide uh, provisionally. Um, it, the cost of it is probably going to be around $2,500, $3,000. And if that's something that God maybe would lay on your heart, you'd like to be a part of that, it'd be awesome. You know, again, there's no pressure, no uh, pressure whatsoever, but if it's something that God would lay on your heart, you'd like to help contribute toward that, and it would be able to be a blessing to uh, Pastor Scott, his wife, and his kids, and the church that he's pastoring there, as well as the many, many other churches uh, that are pastoring churches out there um, to be a part of this pastor's conference. So just throw it out to you guys, be praying, and uh, as to how God would uh, be a part of that in your life. So... With that being said, we have been going through a series in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to jump right into the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you're new here, uh, we've been going through this great book for about a year now. And we've been making our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this uh, account on Jesus' life. And so what we're going to be looking at here today is a passage of Scripture that in a lot of ways, uh, be straight up front honest, and it's, it's kind of cryptic. And uh, I'll read it to you, and it'll sound like a riddle uh, and you'll be like, it sounds like a riddle, because uh, it is, it really is, it's just a riddle. Um, one of the things that you'll discover with Jesus, there's occasions where Jesus speaks, and it's very, very plain, and very clear, and very easy to understand. There's other times uh, that what Jesus says 
demands some unpacking. Um, it not only demanded unpacking for people in the first century that were listening to it, so in other words, the immediate uh, audience to whom Jesus was speaking to, they were confused by it, and they needed to unpack it. We know this. There are times when Jesus would tell these parables, and his own disciples, right, his own inner core, his own team members pulled Jesus aside, and they're just like, what are you talking about? And Jesus is like, well, let me tell you, and Jesus unpacks it for him. So not only are there occasions where Jesus speaks to people in his immediate context, and they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. Um, how much more does that kind of cause us to read certain things where we're like, we don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. 2,000 years removed, completely different culture, completely different uh, ears that hear these types of things. So what I'm trying to say is that we're going to be looking at here today a passage of Scripture that in a lot of ways needs some unpacking to really try to understand it. And uh, so it's, it's part of a larger context of Scripture. I thought about reading and uh, teaching through the larger passage, and, uh, but I decided to just kind of focus on the few verses that we're going to be looking at, and hopefully it'll make some sense to you guys, and hopefully uh, it will ultimately lead to a bigger picture, is my, my intention, my desire, of who God is, that you would see God in a bigger light, uh, not to be just simply impressed in terms of someone that admires God, but so that you'd be welcomed in as a worshiper. And that by being a worshiper of this God, by being in awe and amazed by how big God is, how good God is, your life would be changed. You'd be transformed by how good He is. So with that, what I want to do right now is I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work taking a look at what this is all about. So the passage that we're going to take a look at is uh, Mark chapter 12, beginning about verse 35, going on to about verse 37, so it's only a couple verses. Here's what it says. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of God, or the son of David, sorry. David himself is, uh, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is it that it's also his son? And a great throng heard him gladly. All right, so some of you are like, saying right now, I definitely need to pray because that made no sense to me. I know, that's my point. So I'm going to pray, and hopefully we'll begin to unpack this, and it'll make a little bit of sense to you. So join me. Jesus, right now, we ask you for your help. We need your help. We need your wisdom, and we need your insight. Because, God, we recognize that there are things, oftentimes, that Jesus said that are, are bigger than us, beyond us. And you, God, have the right of saying that, declaring these things because we're human beings and you're God. We're created beings, you're the creator. So God, by virtue of that, you will say things that oftentimes we don't understand. You will do things that oftentimes are completely beyond our understanding. We will never fully comprehend, never fully understand you because you're God. So we ask you right now that you would help us to just understand a little bit of this, that we can at least grow by it. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, up until this point in the chapter, what we've been seeing is that Jesus has been in sort of a constant, ongoing debate with the religious leaders. Um, there are three major groupings of religious leaders. We call them the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And, and oftentimes, I think modern-day Christians can read that and think, oh, they're all the same, like all part of the same team. Actually, um, they're completely in opposite to one another. Uh, they, are, they were never friends. None, none of them actually liked each other. It would be kind of like someone saying, oh, yeah, Democrats, Republicans, they're all on the same team. 
Um, that's very offensive if you're a Democrat and someone tells you, oh, Republicans are your favorite or vice versa. And it's the same thing back then. These people were not friends. They did not like each other. They had very uh, different viewpoints on all sorts of things, social uh, viewpoints. They had different ideas and opinions on religion, different opinions about God, so on and so forth. And so what happens is that in the chapter, chapter 12, each of these differing groups come to Jesus at different occasions and start trying to trap Jesus. Well, this is the first time in the chapter that Jesus actually turns everything over upon them where Jesus, rather than just being defense or responding to their accusations, Jesus, in the first time, actually takes an, an opposition role where Jesus becomes sort of the aggressor. Jesus becomes the one that actually goes after them. Jesus becomes the offensive, plays the offensive role. And what Jesus does is he goes after them and asks them a question. And so what we're going to see now, basically in this passage, are two specific things. The first thing that we're going to essentially see is that Jesus challenges uh, this group of people according to a popular understanding of Scripture. So we'll see Jesus is challenging them. And then secondly, what we'll do is we'll see Jesus calling them to a more fuller understanding of God. So two things that we'll really just be looking at today, trying to unpack this, hopefully making some sense out of this passage, and then really at the end of the day, hopefully letting God transform our hearts to get a better picture of who he is. But we've got to first of all begin a little bit with the challenge. Jesus challenges the popular understanding of Scripture. It's important to note, Jesus is not challenging the Scripture. Jesus loves the Scripture. Jesus is quoting the Scripture. What Jesus challenges is their interpretation of the Scripture. They had... Uh, false ideas placed upon the Scripture. And this, the false ideas or the incomplete ideas that they had about the Bible were leading them to false assumptions. So what Jesus does is he challenges their understanding of the Scripture. So the first thing we see with regard to this of two things, the first of which we'll take a look at the common misbeliefs that they had about the Scripture, and then secondly we'll take a look at the common problem that is really intrinsic to all of us. In other words, all of us find ourselves really, in a lot of ways, with the same types of problems that the religious leaders had. So first of all, let's take a look at the common misbeliefs. Okay, so in Jesus' day, we needed to understand a little bit about the social context. The Jews were a people, chosen people by God. They were a group of, a na they were a nation that God called, if you remember a little of the history, God called Abraham. Abraham was sort of Father Abraham. He's the kind of the patriarch of this entire culture. Entire society of people called the Jews. So all Jews trace all of their lineage all the way back to their main patriarch. His name's Abraham. Abraham obviously had two sons, or one son, Isaac, another son called, uh, grandson called Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. That's where you get the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So what you have here is a patriarchal society that traces all of its lineage back to Father Abraham. Now, in their history, there are occasions when they had kings. And there was a time when what happened, they moved from sort of a tribal group of people into more of a, a, a monarchical society, meaning they had a monarchy, a king. And for the most part, most of us don't know much about kings. We understand presidents, right? We understand a little bit of politics, but we don't understand kings. In fact, what we think about oftentimes when we think about kings is we think about kings as being bad. It's one of the reasons why we're uh, a democratic society is because when America was formed, um, we kind of had this general consensus that kings are not good. Kings aren't working for the general interests of the population. So what you had are a bunch of people trying to, you know, 
plant tobacco and live their life and try to make things happen for themselves. And what you have are kings coming in from the outside saying, oh, I'll take a little bit of that. I'll take a little bit of that. I have kind of this little thing with my kids. Uh, we call it taxes, ironically. Like when we go out to eat, if they get French fries, I'll ask my kids for taxes. Taxes. What that means is I get a fry or a couple of fries or a handful of fries. So I take my taxes. Now, obviously, in a sense, it actually belongs to me because I pay for it, but that's a whole other subject. But the point of the matter is, is in oftentimes uh, kingdoms, you would have these kings and they would take things without really asking. They would just take them because they assumed it belonged to them. So our nation basically said, we don't like kings. We throw off kingdoms. We throw off the yoke of the king, the oppressor, the king, because he did not look after the interests of the people. So for the most part, we think of kingdoms and kings as being bad. Self-interested, they care about themselves, don't really care about any other people, they oppress other people, they milk other people in order to get more money, they tax people in, other, in order to get uh, more power, and so on and so forth. And so what was happening in the people of Israel's history, there were occasions in which they had kings. Sometimes they had good kings, kings that looked, took care of the people, kings that loved God, kings that served God, served God's purposes, served the purposes and needs of the people. There were other occasions where they had bad kings, just like throughout the world today, bad kings. Uh, they don't rule the kingdom well. They take advantage of people, so on and so forth. Well, what had happened was Israel had one of the kings that they had, one of the first few kings that they had, actually the second king, was also the greatest king. And he kind of became sort of like the prototype of what every king should be. You guys know who he is? David, all right? Everybody knows who David is. David was sort of like this prototypical king. In other words, every king looked at David and like, ah, David's awesome. If you go to Israel today, you'll see King David everywhere. Not literally, like he's not alive, but... So you, so you know, you're like, oh, I thought he was alive. No, he's dead, actually. Been a long time dead. Um, but you'll, you'll go and you'll see like King David, like pubs, King David hookah shops, King David liquor stores, King David falafel stands. Everything's King David. Everybody loves King David, right? So King David becomes sort of this prototype. Now, what had happened was throughout Israel's history, they had sort of this hope that one day God would raise up another king like King David. And not just like King David, he would actually be related to King David. In other words, he would actually be part of the dynasty of King David. He would be a son of David. And he would rule and reign. So let's bring up to speed 2,000 years ago during the day in which Jesus lived. The people of Israel didn't have a king. Now there was a guy that claimed to be a king over the people of Israel. His name was Herod. Uh, Herod died and Herod kind of gave his kingdom over to four of his other uh, sons and relatives and whatnot. And these, these guys claimed to be kings over Israel, but they, they weren't real kings. They weren't after the lineage of David. They weren't even related to David. In fact, they weren't even Jewish. But they exercised authority over the Jews. And oftentimes when asked, are you the king of the Jews? They would say, of course we're the king of the Jews. But the Jews hated Herod and hated Herod's dynasty. Okay? So what that meant is really the main king that was over the people of Israel during Jesus' day was a guy ruling and reigning out of Rome. His name was Caesar. Uh, was Caesar popular among the Jews? No. Everybody hated him. Why? Because just like every other king, guess what he did? He taxed them. He forced them to do things they didn't want to do. Uh, he did what every other king had done. He got richer. People of Israel got poorer. 
He enjoyed more freedoms. The people of Israel had freedom stripped from them. Jews hated Caesar. So you can imagine in the first century, the Jews had this heightened desire, anticipation for the promised king to come. Now, amongst all Jews, there were at least two things that everybody agreed upon. One, every Jew agreed that one day God would raise up a king. The second thing every Jew agreed upon is that this king was actually going to become or come from the lineage of guess who? David. Every Jew agreed to that. Every Jew believed that. Every Jew hoped for that. So what you see here in the gospel accounts is Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus, we're told, actually was from the lineage of David. Um, some of you, have, you know, when you try to make an attempt to read the New Testament, uh, you may have started at the Gospel of Matthew. All right, You get like one chapter into it, and three verses into it, you're like, oh, so-and-so beget so-and-so, and so-and-so beget so-and-so, and so-and-so beget so-and-so. And then you're like, right, I'll skip this chapter and go to the next chapter. It's called the genealogy. You, you skipped a really important part. I know it's very hard to read that, but in that chapter, what you would have discovered, there comes a point where it finally climaxes by saying, Jesus, who is also part of the lineage or the son of David. This is the New Testament's attempt, the New Testament writer's attempt to basically say, Jesus is not just some random dude coming on the planet, but that Jesus has a distinct role. Jesus has a family lineage that's absolutely important to know where he came from. Jesus came from the line of David. So with that being said, there were these expectations. They had these ideas based upon passages of Scripture like Psalm 2 and Psalm 89 and Psalm 110 and 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there would be a king that would come and that when the king came, he would do a couple things. One, he would purify the temple because the temple was sort of the central zone of religious life for the people of Israel. But the temple was always kind of getting polluted because pagans, non-Jews, were always kind of coming in and sort of, you know, so imagine a Jewish nation where they really want to keep Judaism pure. But here you got all these pagans. Here you got all these Romans who worship false gods and do sorts of weird practices and are into weird stuff. And here you're trying to keep your nation really holy and pure and clean. And yet you got all these nasty, wicked, evil people all around you. So when this king would come, they had this hope and anticipation. He would actually purify the temple, but that he would also fight the decisive battle. Against whom? Against the bad guys, of course. Isn't that the storyline of every epic drama? Right? Lord of the Rings. There's always the good guy fighting in this climactic battle against the bad guy, right? Uh, Star Wars, same thing. Um, I, you know, this is sort of the same narrative that you see in every epic drama. This is the same that's true in the Bible. That there was this hope and anticipation that when this king came, after the lineage of David, he would not only purify the temple, but he would also fight the decisive battle to overcome the wicked enemy and set the people free. So, here you are living in the first century. You have this hope and anticipation that God's going to make good on the Bible. In your mind, as a first century Jew, who is the big enemy that you're waiting for God to overthrow? Rome. That's the general consensus. That's what everybody thought. In their mind, most Jews, first century, they were like looking for this king, this king that was after the lineage of David, and this king that would one day come 
cleanse the temple, and then ultimately overthrow, by way of decisive battle, the bad guys. In this case, Rome. So here's what was going on. Really what I oftentimes see, but what Jesus is basically saying here, is he's suggesting and hinting at that this person, this king, would not only be David's son, but Jesus is hinting that this king would also be more than just simply David's son. This king would also be David's God. This is what Jesus is about to challenge in this common misconception that they have with regard to this particular verse. So here's the problem that I see it. The problem that I think it's going on is that these religious leaders were looking for solutions based upon the false understanding as to what the real problem was. In other words, let me put it this way. First century Jews saw the big problem as being the Romans. And so therefore, what they're looking for, by way of solution, is someone that could overthrow the Romans. But what Jesus is basically saying is that your problem is you're not asking the right questions. You're misdiagnosing the problem. The real issue is one that goes deeper. The real problem is a problem underneath the problem. Yes, Rome's a problem. But there's a deeper villain. There's a darker, evil, wicked lord underneath Caesar. There's something deeper, more pernicious, more wicked than you can ever imagine. And because you're not going deep enough, your solutions are too shallow. In other words, you're willing to settle for a military king to fight a military battle against a military powerhouse. But Jesus is saying the real solution is something bigger, greater, more beyond what you can ever even imagine. Because you're looking for a son of David, but God has something more that he wants to give you that involves the son of God. And so what Jesus is going to continue to do He's going to begin to shape them and challenge them with regard to understanding this. So we see, first of all, not only the common misbeliefs that were based upon false understandings of the Scripture, but we also see the common problem. So the problem is this, is that these people in the first century, they're actually willing to settle for a lesser solution to a lesser problem because they either A, didn't understand the depth of the problem, or they were blinded to the depth of the problem. But in reality, this is just like you and I. And so what I want to pause and just kind of focus on is the reality, this is where you and I are at today. In other words, the majority of the problem that you and I have and we face is we have this tendency to not see the depth of the problems. We see things superficially. Most of us, when we look at our lives, we think that everything's just fine. It's one of the reasons why we as Americans, you ask me like, how are you doing? We're like, I'm all right. Or I'm fine. Or I'm great. Or if you're a Christian, you're like, Praise Jesus. You're like, everything's wonderful. And it's not wonderful. Your life's not good. Your circumstances are not good. Your heart's not good. Nothing's good in your life. But because we love to just say everything's good, we say everything's good. But the reality is, is that there may be problems in our lives, but the problem is there may be problems underneath the problems, but we oftentimes fail to go deep enough to deal with the problems. And so what happens is we end up looking for solutions, and the solutions we apply don't go deep enough to the root of the problem. I'll give you an example of this. Someone may be struggling with just feeling really sad or really frustrated or really hurt or whatever the case is, and oftentimes they may turn, if they have it within their uh, parameters to be able to grab it, things like drugs, or they might just get drunk, or they might do something thinking that this is going to solve my problem. The reality is it never solves a problem. 
Or someone might think, what I really need is just a job. I'm in debt. What I really need is a job. When in reality, getting a job may be good. Getting a job may be part of the solution. But if what you really have is a heart that is constantly not satisfied, meaning you are always coveting. You feel like you need to always have the latest and greatest things. Let's just say you even won the lottery and you pay off all of your debt. If your heart really is covetous, meaning you're always trying to just buy something because you're trying to satisfy something deep inside that goes very deep, you're not going to really solve the problem. In other words, money is not the solution for you because you're misapplying, you're misdiagnosing the real problem. The real problem is you have a coveting problem. The real problem is you have a worship problem. And once the worship problem is dealt with, then you can begin to apply the proper solutions. This was exactly what was going on in the first century. They saw the real problem as simply being Rome. If we can get rid of Rome, we can get rid of their taxation, we can be free. If we can get rid of the wicked oppressor, then we can have freedom. Jesus is saying, wrong. Because the real problem goes deeper than you can ever imagine. What you need is not somebody that's just going to simply destroy Caesar you need somebody that can somehow overthrow and conquer the evil that leads Caesar. The wickedness beneath the wickedness. The oppressor beneath the oppressor. The sin beneath the sin. And so here's what ends up happening in our lives. We oftentimes misdiagnose our problems and then we look for false solutions. So some of us might look at our lives and think, oh, the real problem in my life is I'm just simply suffering. Therefore, my solution is if I can just have a God that can perform a miracle for me, like he's a magician, then somehow all of my suffering will go away. When in reality, God may say, the real problem is not that you're suffering, it's how you're suffering. Because Jesus would say, I suffered. It's not that that Jesus suffered, it's how Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered to the glory of God. And perhaps what God is trying to say in our lives is that suffering is not the problem in your life. It's how you're suffering. Some of us might go on to say, the real problems in our life is ignorance. I need more Bible knowledge. I need to learn more about God. I need to study the Bible more. Is it good to study the Bible? It's great to study the Bible. We study the Bible a lot. We love reading the Bible. We love studying God's words. One of the reasons we spend a lot of time doing it every single week, because we see that there's value in it. But some might think, all we really need is to just remove our ignorance, study the Bible all the time, and what can end up happening is we can think what we really need is just more Bible study when God's really saying what you don't need, you don't just need more Bible study because the real issue is not ignorance, the real issue is arrogance. You're arrogant. You read the Bible, you gain information, you gain knowledge, and you criticize everybody who doesn't. The real heart of the issue is not learning more, it's learning how to apply what you have more. It's learning to be humble with what you have rather than arrogant. Some of us might go further. And this, obviously, we're in a, a year in which we're going to elect a president. So there's a lot of this conversation going on right now. Some of us might think the real problem is morality. What we really need is morality to be returned. That what we need is we need to get rid of all the wicked, all the evil, all the people that are doing nasty stuff. And so what happens is what can oftentimes take place, we're like, what we really need is, is a morality change. And what really what Jesus is saying is, yes, morality is important, but what we perhaps really need, even beyond that, is to round it off, is we need to have a heart for the poor, for the needy, 
So the issue is not just simply morality. The issue is learning how to love your neighbor. Some of us might even go a little bit further and say the real issue is justice. What we need is more social justice. We need more of a left agenda, more liberalism, more type of a way of approaching government from that particular angle. But again, what Jesus would say is this. What you really need is more morality. So some of you might be like, this sounds really confusing. He's talking about morality, more liberalism, more taking care of social justice and serving the needs of the poor. What I'm trying to say is this, is you can't put Jesus in a box. And oftentimes we try. In other words, the problem is, is that we have too little of a view of God. Our understanding of God is too small. And part of it is designed that way because we have this propensity to create a God that will service our needs only. And what ends up happening is rather than letting Jesus define for us who he claims to be, we oftentimes will say, I'll define for myself what I need Jesus to be for me. And what ends up happening is we end up having a false God, a God that really doesn't exist, a God that really can't help us in our time of need. Let me read to you a passage out of uh, C.S. Lewis that I think is actually one of my favorite passages. And to some degree, he addresses this issue, but it's in a little bit of a different context. But it's one of my favorite passages, and I think to some degree, it touches on what I'm talking about. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, it would seem as if our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go, to, go on making mud pies in a, in a slum because he can't even imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased. And then what C.S. Lewis is saying really taps into the heart of every single one of us. Because we fail to diagnose the real depth of the problems in our lives, we oftentimes look for superficial solutions. We're like a child that thinks, ah, what's wrong in the world is I need to get dirty. I will make a mud pie. When in reality, he just can't even conceive that he's being offered something far deeper that will bring even greater, more lasting joy. And this is really what I think is happening here in the Gospel of Mark. Is that the religious leaders in Jesus' day are saying, what we need is a military might, powerful God that will come in, a powerful king that will come in and overthrow Caesar and give us our land back, give us the power that rightly belongs to us. And what Jesus is saying, if that's what happens, then you will be given power, but you will use that power to oppress because your hearts are still evil. But what Jesus is saying, what you really need is a king that will come and rearrange your heart to truly give you the freedom that you truly need, but you just don't know it. This is what Jesus is saying. So not only Jesus is identifying that this coming king would be the son of David, he would be David's son, but more than that, he would also be David's Lord. See, because the reality is, again, like I said, going back to the issue of kind of politics and where we're at today and things that we're trying to struggle with and deal with and understand, we can talk about, like I said, within kind of the common social political arena that really what we need is a greater, stronger, more liberal agenda that takes care of the needy and is able to suppress the powerhouses of this culture and this society. But the reality to the real technical liberal, the one who cares a lot for the needy, Jesus actually is far too conservative. But the flip side, to the one who is totally conservative, that cares about morality, Jesus is far too liberal. 
Because Jesus is always saying things like, watch your heart. Because in your heart, there's a wickedness there. Because lust and actions come out of the heart. In other words, Jesus is always pressing hard on the moral issue. But Jesus is also always pressing on caring for the needs of your neighbor. Jesus is both. You can't just simply say Jesus is focused on one. You can't put Jesus into a party line. You can't say, well, Jesus is a Democrat. You can't say Jesus is a Republican. He doesn't fit in those boxes. Because, like I said, Jesus is really very liberal and very moral at the same time. Very conservative at the same time. He cares about the needy. He cares about the marginalized, the hurting, the poor. But he also cares about the way people care about other people, the morality in people's hearts. He cares about it all. So, again, the reality is that Jesus challenges the popular understanding of the Scripture. And what I find really amazing, if I can just kind of give a very quick over-the-counter uh, application of this, right? You go to the store, you need an over-the-counter, like, drug to kind of help you out in the moment. Here's an over-the-counter application, immediate application. I think what I learned from this, uh, just kind of a side note, is here you got these religious leaders that these guys were experts in the law. They studied the scripture vocationally. This was their livelihood. I mean, they got paid for doing this for the most part. Actually, they didn't get paid, but they lived off of, you know, income that came in for them to be able to do this on a regular basis. These guys were experts in the law. Even though they were experts, they failed to see the depth of the problem, and they fail to see the depth and the broadness of the solution. If anything, what that should do, it should cause us to be humble when we study our Bibles. There are certain things that are very clear, very cut and dry, very black and white. There are other things, other times that we can approach certain other passages of the Scripture that we need to at least take a humble heart, humble attitude, because there's going to be certain things that we may not have the fullness of the revelation completely of. We're still understanding it. This is what was happening in this day. These guys had the passages. They were experts in the scripture. If they had humble hearts and if they were willing to listen to Jesus, they would have learned. But they shut Jesus out. So to me, the crucial element is don't shut Jesus out. Jesus is what the scripture points to. Jesus is where our lives really find its fullness. So I want to finish the second part here. I'm done. What we see here is that Jesus calls them to something greater. So what we take, see take place in this passage is that Jesus, through this riddle, he basically reminds them that there's something bigger in the text than just simply a king being David's son. And what Jesus is doing is he's coming into the city of Jerusalem and he's saying, the person that has come to be the king is somebody that none of you have ever expected. He's far more than what any of you can ever even dream of or imagine. Now, I want to show you guys a clip, and I've kind of talked about this before, and I've publicized this before. It's a, a program called Undercover Boss. I'm going to show you this little clip, and what happens, uh, you'll see in this clip, um, it's just a little one-minute clip. It's very short. Um, there's a guy, I don't even know what his name is, but uh, he's like the CEO of a company called Checkers. I think it's some sort of like hamburger joint. And um, so he's actually having a dialogue with, with, a, with a worker. So what happens here is the CEO of the company goes undercover, like he puts on a mop on his head, and he puts, you know, makes his face look a little bit different. So he goes undercover, works, gets to know some of the employees, hangs out with some of the managers of different, uh, you know, franchises and stuff like that, and talks to the people, and really tries to understand what's going on, and they make a whole entire show on it. So in this clip that you're going to see, 
uh, the undercover boss actually goes into one of his uh, restaurants, and there's a boss there that's treating all the employees really not, not very nice. And what you're going to see is the dialogue between the CEO and the manager. But the manager doesn't know that he's the CEO yet. Okay? I, I think I set that up pretty well for you, and then I'll explain why I'm showing you this in a second. This company, just like you, wants it to be nice, low tone. It doesn't work. If I don't scream at them, they don't listen to me. But I'm not gonna let you continue telling me I'm disrespecting my crew. Have you been in the fast food business before? Uh, no, I haven't. Maybe that's Have my Have you problem. been in the restaurant business at all? I've studied the restaurant business. No, not studied. Have you any experience in the restaurant business? Actually, I do. I'll be honest with you. I do have experience. I'll tell you exactly. Um, I have been in the restaurant business for over 20 years. And I've been in the fast food business for over 20 years. I'm the CEO for this company. I know exactly what it takes to run a restaurant like this. And guess what? I know the right way to do it, and I know the wrong way to do it. Right here, right now, we're going to shut the restaurant down. <laughs> I love that. It's like, that's what Jesus does. He shows up on the Temple Mount. And he's like, look, I know the right way to worship God, and I know the wrong way, and you guys are the wrong way. You're not doing it right. You're not managing the Temple Mount right. You're not managing anything right. You're not shepherding the people well. You're taking advantage of the people. And what Jesus is basically doing, he shows up on the Temple Mount to the religious leaders, all the managers, right, of the franchise. And he's like, you're not doing it right, and we take it back. So what Jesus is basically doing in this confrontation is he's saying, you don't understand the scripture because you fail to properly diagnose the depth of the problem. You think the problem is just wrong. But the problem goes far deeper than that. And because the problem goes far deeper than that, the solution goes far deeper than that. What Jesus is saying is not only is this king going to be David's son, but it needs far more than that because it needs to be David's God. And this is what Jesus is saying. That God is doing something bigger than they can ever even imagine. I want to read you a passage out of, uh, out of a book by a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. He's a New Testament scholar. I think the way he put this is just spot on. So I'll just read it to you because I think he can do a better job at saying it than I am. So here's what he says. You will find that the Messiah, who will, of course, be a descendant of David, will also be one whom David rightly called Lord. Jesus is raising the corner of the curtain that hides the biggest secret of all. Not only is he the Messiah coming with royal authority to Jerusalem and the temple, not only is he coming to die to bring about the true kingdom, he is doing all of this not only as David's son, but as David's Lord. Look, here's the deal. Most of us, I think we have this tendency when we read our Bibles, we assume, we assume that everybody in Jesus' day and age, they all knew that Jesus was God. Right? We assume that because we read the Bible, and we read the Bible with the assumption, of course, Jesus is God. But you've got to understand that for the most of the people that follow Jesus, in fact, probably all of the people that follow Jesus, they didn't see Jesus as God. They saw Jesus as a powerful being that was anointed by God to be this king, this Messiah. What they were learning was that not only was this Messiah David's son, but this Messiah also happened to be undercover boss that is also God. It's absolutely amazing. To the degree that they began to see this, it changed them. 
fact, I want to finish with a first century sermon that I think encapsulates this perfectly. Uh, in the early church, as the early church started and began to grow, uh, 50 days, in fact, 50 days after Jesus rose again from the dead, there was an event called Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit falls down and people start speaking in tongues and these miraculous things begin to happen. What ends up taking place is Peter, one of Jesus' leaders, stands up and begins to preach. I'm going to read you a little segment of the sermon that Jesus preached, and I think what you'll find that this is exactly what Paul, or I'm sorry, what Peter is basically communicating to those that are listening. That this Jesus, that Jesus, this guy that you saw hanging around Jerusalem, this guy that came from Galilee, this guy that was born of a carpenter, this guy whose mom is of questionable origin and questionable morality, that this guy Jesus, that all the rumors were circulating about, also is the king. And he's not just the king. He's not just David's son, but he's also David's God. This is how Peter describes this. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. He says this to the people that were asking him questions. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried in, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of the descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Okay, pause real quick. Uh, I've said this before. I think it might be helpful to reiterate it. Whenever we, we read the word Christ, we just automatically assume that it's, it's Jesus. But again, I want you to understand, first century, here they are learning and understanding the story of Jesus. The word Christ, um, you can translate very easily as king. So anytime you read the word Christ, you can just translate it as king. So anytime you see Jesus Christ, it's not his last name, right? Like, Jesus Christ, it's his last name. No, Christ actually is his vocation, his title, who he is, what he's come to do. That Jesus is the king. What type of king? The king who came in the lineage of David, the king that's come to fulfill all of these Old Testament prophecies, the king that's not like Caesar, not like Nebuchadnezzar, not like Pharaoh, the king who's unlike any other king, not coming to judge, but coming to be judged. A king not coming to spill the blood of his subjects, the king coming to have his blood spilled for his subjects. This is the king that Peter wants the people to understand who he is. And here's what he says, basically in short, everybody knows that David was a king, but David's dead. Everybody knows that David's going to have a son, and his son is going to be the king. And here's what Peter goes on to point out. He says in verse 32, this Jesus died God raised him up. And this is Peter's way of saying, this Jesus, we believe, happens to be that king. He is the one that was promised by God. And he's not just simply David's son, but he's also David's God. What's absolutely amazing about this truth is that what this means is that we have a God that is not just simply a distant, remote being that demands our admiration and showers down nice, pithy, helpful, encouraging statements at us to memorize, to monogram onto shirts, to kind of put into our coffee mugs, to put them on our Bibles. But this is not a God who just simply gives us nice little verses to make us feel good about ourselves. But this God is a God that actually takes up residency in his broken, hurting creation to come alongside broken hurting people like you and I 
Because, not because he's powerful alone, but because in his power, he uses his power combined with his love. He loves you. Because this king comes into our world, into our suffering, bears our shame, bears our guilt, bears our pain, this means that he's a king that we can trust in. What Jesus is doing is he's basically in this little riddle to the religious leaders. He's saying it's possible, in fact, likely, in fact, true, that in this passage that David quoted in the psalm, Psalm 110, is not only speaking that this king that would one day come would not only be David's son, but that indeed this king would be far more. He would actually be David's God. That Yahweh himself would come into this broken, hurting world and live among us bear our shame, come into our lives and love on us and do something for us that no other God, no other deity, no other entity has ever done. He will bear our suffering, bear our shame for us simply because He loves you. What Jesus is saying is that He's not come to give us a rational argument to point us and to point our minds to the existence of God. He's not just simply come to do a magic trick, to do a bunch of signs, miracles, and wonders, to wow us with his might. Though he does that, and though he does speak rationally, this Jesus comes and says, I haven't come to just give you rational arguments. I haven't come to just give you signs, miracles, and wonders. I have come, period. I have come. I have come to answer your questions by coming in the flesh. This he's done to demonstrate his love for you. It's one thing to tell someone that you love them. It's another thing to go sit down next to them and put your arm around them. To hug them. It's one thing to just text it. I love you. It's another thing to actually show up on the doorstep and embrace them. The picture of this king is that he's come into our world and he's demonstrated the depth of his profound love for us and that he died in our place, bearing our shame because he loves us. Paul the Apostle, later on in 1 Corinthians, would basically say something to this effect. He said that the Jews, they demand a sign. Greeks, they demand wisdom. Paul says, but what we have to offer is not necessarily a sign and not necessarily wisdom. We have a person. To the degree that you see that God demonstrated his love for you by making it personal, that will change your heart. That will change the way that you view about this God. He's a God that cares. In the show Undercover Boss, at the end, the boss typically brings his entire staff together and everybody that was part of this reality show, but they don't know they're part of the reality show yet, and he unveils himself. Every single person they always interview afterwards always say the same thing. Here's what they say. Something to the effect. We feel so honored that our boss came and did our job with us. We feel so cared for. To the degree that you see that your God is not only David's son, but also David's Lord, and he came into this world to demonstrate his love to you, 
because he loves you. To the degree that you see that also puts you in the place whereby you can now then give your heart to this God. You can trust your heart to this God because you can know for certain that he's a God that won't crush you, but a God that who's this powerful is a God that is also this equally loving. And you can give him your fragile, broken, hurting, troubled, disappointed hearts, and he will heal it. You can give this God your sinful, defiled, shame-filled hearts, and he will cleanse them. You can trust this God. We're going to finish. We're going to sing a few songs. We'll partake of communion. And what I want to do is I want to invite you to worship this God. Because this God, who is this great, this big, this powerful, this loving, is the God that you can't just simply stand back and sort of stroke your invisible beard and be in awe of him. You can't just simply be like, you know, I admire this guy. He's an amazing guy. You can't just simply stand back and be like, oh, what a good guy. But to the degree that you see what he's done for you, it moves something in your heart whereby you have to worship him. The affections in your heart are stirred. And I want to invite you to worship this God. Not because his arguments are credible, though they are, but because he himself is the embodiment of everything that is incredible. He's a God that you cannot just simply stand on the sidelines in honor, but he's a God that you can fall on your knees in worship, knowing that he will take your fragile hearts and bring healing. This is a God you can love and give yourself entirely to. I'm going to pray. We'll partake of communion if you're like, if you're a Christian. I invite you to come and just worship. We have some rugs in the front. If you just want to get on your faces before God and worship Him and love on Him, you're invited to just do that. We're going to sing a couple songs and we'll dismiss you guys. But I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to sing with me. In fact, if you guys would like, why don't you all join me? Let's just all stand. If you want to sit down again, that's fine. If you want to get on your knees, that's fine. I just want to invite you to worship this God. God, thank you that we can sing to you and that you respond, that you love us. God, that you've initiated your love in our hearts and our lives by dying on the cross for us. And so, Father, now we want to give back to you our heart, our love, knowing that you were restored and healed our lives.